Ladies and gentlemen, the President of the United States. My fellow Americans, last night when I spoke with you about the fall of Rome, I knew at that moment that troops of the United States and our allies were crossing the channel in another and greater operation. It has come to pass with success thus far. And so, in this poignant hour, I ask you to join with me in prayer. Almighty God, our sons, pride of our nation, this day have set upon a mighty endeavor, a struggle to preserve our republic, our religion, and our civilization and to set free a suffering humanity. Lead them straight and true. Give strength to their arms, stoutness to their hearts, steadfastness in their faith. They will need thy blessings. Their road will be long and hard. For the enemy is strong. He may hurl back our forces. Success may not come with rushing speed, but we shall return again and again. And we know that by thy grace and by the righteousness of our cause, our sons will triumph. They will be sore tried by night and by day without rest until the victory is won. The darkness will be rent by noise and flame. Men's souls will be shaken with the violences of war. For these men are lately drawn from the ways of peace. They fight not for the lust of conquest. They fight to end conquest. They fight to liberate. They fight to let justice arise and tolerance and goodwill among all thy people. They yearn but for the end of battle, for their return to the haven of home. Some will never return. Embrace these, Father, and receive them, thy heroic servants, into thy kingdom. And for us at home, fathers, mothers, children, wives, sisters, and brothers of brave men overseas, whose thoughts and prayers are ever with them, help us, almighty God, to rededicate ourselves in renewed faith in thee, in this hour of great sacrifice. Many people have urged that I call the nation into a single day of special prayer. But because the road is long and the desire is great, I ask that our people devote themselves in a continuance of prayer. As we rise to each new day, 
And again, when each day is spent, let words of prayer be on our lips, invoking thy help to our efforts. Give us strength, too, strengthen our daily tasks, to redouble the contributions we make in the physical and the material support of our armed forces. And let our hearts be stout to wait out the long of travel, to bear sorrows that may come, to impart our courage unto our sons, wheresoever they may be. And, O oh Lord, give us faith. Give us faith in thee, faith in our sons, Faith in each other, faith in our united crusade. Let not the keenness of our spirit ever be dull. Let not the impacts of temporary events, of temporal matters of but fleeting moment, let not these deter us in our unconquerable purpose. With thy blessing, we shall prevail over the unholy forces of our enemy. Help us to conquer the apostles of greed and racial arrogances. Lead us to the saving of our country and with our sister nations into a world unity that will spell a sure peace a peace invulnerable to the schemings of unworthy men, and a peace that will let all men live in freedom, reaping the just rewards of their honest toil. Thy will be done, almighty God. Amen. Ladies and gentlemen, the President has just led the nation in prayer. We return you now to New York. Columbia's news headquarters in New York, Bob Trout speaking. We've heard the prayer of the President of the United States, written by the President and broadcast by him from Washington. And now continuing Columbia's invasion coverage, in a few moments from our New York news headquarters, we shall hear from Quentin Reynolds, from William L. Shira, and from Major George Fielding Elliott. But first, we're going to switch to Great Britain, where our Columbia news staff has already been up half the night. It's past 4 a.m. in London right now, and we shall all certainly be on duty at our microphones for many hours to come. So now to Edward R. Murrow. Go ahead, London. This is London. Early this morning, we heard the bombers going out. It was the sound of a giant factory in the sky. It seemed to shake the old gray stone buildings in this bruised and battered city beside the Thames. The sign was heavier, more triumphant than ever before. Those who knew what was coming could imagine that they heard Drake drum and strains of the battle hymn of the Republic well above the roar of the motors. The first first communique merely announced that Allied forces had landed in northern France. We were told that the weather had been unkind during the initial phase of the operation. The attack had been once postponed because of weather, and had been launched in the early hours of this morning because the weathermen said conditions would improve. And they did. We were told that General Montgomery is commanding the ground forces. 
while Lee Mallory directs the air offensive. His bombers put 8,000 tons onto the target area in the course of 10 hours. Soon the eyewitness accounts began coming in. Men who had been flying all told the same story. They'd gone in low, had met no heavy flash, the German fighters had not engaged. No movement was observed on the Cherbourg Peninsula. The country was scarred and pockmarked by the greatest concentration of bombs ever done. Early in the morning, General Ike Eisenhower had Here in London, we were told that four important considerations had to be borne in mind. First, that this campaign would not be won by a single smacking blow. That it depended upon logistics. Continued and uninterrupted flow of material and men to the fighting front. Second, the presence of a certain number of non-German troops need not be a source of weakness to the enemy. That these foreign elements are unlikely to cause disintegration. Third, the Allied forces could expect little aid from the local inhabitants in the coastal area. The able-bodied had been removed. The minesweepers were the first to go in. And the Navy men around headquarters made no effort to conceal their pride over the job done by the The American naval losses were very, very light. And the shore batteries near the landing point were quickly sighted. Three American ships engaged in shore bombardment have been named. The Atlantic, the Tuscaloosa, and the Nevada. All during the day, the confidence around headquarters continued. Although it was recognized that the German counterattack has not yet been put in, and the German air power is being held in reserve. Here in London, the steadiness of the civilian population is one of the most remarkable things I've ever seen. Expressions didn't seem to change. People went about their business calmly. There was no excitement. Watching them walking along the streets of London, you almost wanted to shout at them and say, Don't you know that history is being made this day? Their emotions were under complete control. For weeks and months, the long lines of khaki colored transports had been writhing down to the coast. Everyone, including the enemy, knew what was coming. But when it came, it didn't seem to break the tension. Four years of war had taught these people that hard work and steadiness are more important than easy optimism and exultation. There seems to be an unspoken acknowledgement. But this is only the beginning of a costly and difficult operation. It has been a brilliant beginning. The airborne operation was eminently successful. Mr. Churchill, who was not given to easy optimism, made a hopeful and encouraging speech to the House of Commons. The difficulties which appeared at this time last night are behind us. He said that the operation is proceeding in a thoroughly satisfactory manner. It was a day of many speeches. Marshal Faison issued a proclamation urging the French people to stay put and carry on with their normal job. General de Gaulle made a broadcast to France asking all Frenchmen to fight the Germans wherever and when they can. He told them to sabotage and destroy the German defenses, avoid German concerns, and mobilize the to the Allied armies. He called upon Frenchmen to obey the orders of the French government, by which he meant the Committee of National Liberation in Algiers. Yet occupied sufficient French territory to make its political administration an urgent problem. General de Gaulle has clearly indicated that he expects the National Committee to handle the civil administration of the liberated territory. A few hours ago, Britain's king spoke to the world. He concluded with these words If, 
from every place of work, factories, from men and women of all ages and many races and occupations. Our intercessions rise. Then, please God, both now and in a future not remote, the predictions of an ancient psalm may be fulfilled. The Lord will give strength unto his people. The Lord will give his people reports indicate that the situation is satisfactory, but the weather is worsening. A strong wind is blowing across the channel, and sizable waves are hitting the beaches. That will increase our problems of supply. But there is nothing to indicate that the weather is to the point where the execution of the plan is in danger. The last communique issued in London gave us no information regarding the progress of the land fighting. But the only thing that can be said officially is that the operation is on schedule and that the airborne landings were successful and that the initial landings went according to schedule. But all during the day, the Allied air umbrella provided effective protection. Naval casualties have been light, especially when the magnitude of the operation is taken into account. During the hours of daylight, the German Air Force avoided combat. We have no information concerning air action from start to day. Admiral Ramsey, who commands the Allied Navy, said today, we have broken the foot and started off on the right foot. It is Admiral Ramsey's opinion that the Navy has made possible a land battle, but that there is still a long way to go before it is possible for land battle to be won. The Germans have been fishing for information all day, and the Allied command has been withholding it. In the past, the German reaction has always been prompt and vigorous. The news of the last 24 hours would seem to indicate that they are perhaps waiting for the Allies' intentions to be more fully disclosed before committing their land and air forces in decisive battle. The Germans must not only try to anticipate Albert's move, they must think constantly of the coming Russian offensive. During the early phase of every operation, there is an absence of detailed information as both sides try to conceal their movements and intentions. That's what's happening tonight. The Irons who landed with the assault troops have not yet reached London. But a careful survey of every report by air and naval observers reveals a strong note of surprise and amazement at the absence of the Luftwaffe in the German Tonight, a great race against time. We are attempting to consolidate our position to withstand the inevitable German counterattack. While the Germans are attempting to regroup their forces, prepare to strike before we are well established. That appears to be the position at the moment. When there is more news, we shall hope to bring it to you. I return you now to CBS New York. That was Columbia's correspondent, Edward R. Merrill, summing up the situation as it looks from England at the moment. We regret that the circuit uh, from London was not very clear. We trust that you were able to hear most of what Mr. Merrill had to say. Last night, during our all-night session here at these microphones, we were fortunate enough to have good quality from London, and we trust that the circuits will be clear after a bit so that we can continue to bring you reports, eyewitness descriptions of the correspondents from Britain as the correspondents return from the operation. And now we're back at Columbia's news headquarters in New York. We've been told, of course, that General Montgomery is leading the Allied ground troops who have started the liberation of northern France. Quentin Reynolds, our Columbia War Correspondent, is here at our news headquarters in New York. He's seen General Montgomery engaged in the task of directing a battle. And now here is Quentin Reynolds to tell us something about the colorful general. 
It seems fitting that we follow the prayer offered by our president just ten minutes ago with a few words about the man who is leading our troops tonight because he, too, has an amazing spiritual quality you don't often find in a successful general. I refer, of course, to General Sir Bernard Law Montgomery, leader of all Allied ground forces. Montgomery is a colorful, almost a legendary figure, but his voice is little known. Only a few moments ago, BBC carried a broadcast by General Montgomery, which we bring you now. I want every soldier to know that I have complete confidence in the successful outcome of the operations that we are now about to begin. With stout hearts and with enthusiasm for the contest, let us go forward to victory. Let me tell you something about this man whose voice you have just heard. The man who was called Monty by your son. I know him very well, and I'm sure you'd like to know him too. Monty, I said, has a tremendous spiritual quality about him. He has lived an austere, almost monk-like existence. And strangely enough, the one thing he hates above all else is bloodshed. Late last September, the Fifth Army had established itself on the beaches of Salerno and was off on the road to Rome. I was with General Montgomery then, and I asked him how long it would be before we took Rome. What do the troops think about that, he asked me. Oh, they're fairly optimistic, I told General Montgomery. They think they'll be in Rome within three weeks or so. Montgomery laughed, and then he said seriously, if the winter isn't too severe, if we don't have too much rain, and if we have good luck, I expect we'll be in Rome sometime in the late spring. At the time, I thought that Montgomery was fooling. I thought he was merely indulging in his well-known sense of the dramatic. But two days ago, when our troops did enter Rome, I recalled his words. Monty had been right once more. This magnificent general who was leading our ground forces in the invasion has a habit of being right. I have never seen a general who was venerated by his men, as is the little man in the black beret. His officers sometimes resent the way he treats them. He insists upon them being in perfect physical condition. And he has been known to immediately transfer or demote officers who couldn't stand the strain of a forced 20-mile march. His discipline is rigid, even in the desert. But his men will do anything he asks because they know one thing. They know that when Monty gives the order to advance, they will have everything they need in the way of weapons, supplies, and air cover. Monty, who has a reputation as a daring, dashing, slashing sort of a general, is, on the contrary, the most careful of men. No general is more reluctant to attack unless he is fully prepared. No general is less willing to take unnecessary chances. His men of the Eighth Army, and now the American and Canadian troops, who fight side by side with the British, know this. They know, too, that in any army headed by Montgomery, there will be no unnecessary casualties. Monty does not believe that men are expendable. He would rather lose a hundred tanks or guns than one man. That is why the men who fight under him tonight fight with such perfect confidence. Outwardly cold, calculating, intense, Monty is human underneath his hard-bitten exterior, and his men know that. 
he can't fool them. They know that when they serve under him, their lives will not be wasted. Today, that should be a comfort to thousands of American parents who quite naturally look toward the coming days with anxiety. If your son serves under Montgomery, he serves under the greatest tactical general in the world. And he serves under a man who is vitally concerned with the welfare and the safety of every one of his men. Yes, Monty is human after all. I remember when I left him that bright September afternoon in Italy. He wore his shirt open at the neck, and he wore his tan shorts, and his black beret was perched jauntily on his head. He's very proud of that black beret. I was just about to drive away when he stopped me, and he asked almost shyly. He said, By the way, I've heard a report that the girls in New York are wearing hats copied after my beret. Is that true? I told him I didn't know. But if he performs a military miracle, we all think he is capable of performing. If he beats Rommel on the continent for the third time, I think the girls of our country might well honor him by copying his impudent, defiant, jaunty black beret. That was Quentin Reynolds. Now here at Columbia's News Headquarters in New York is William L. Shara, who has a few words for us about German propaganda, a subject to which we should pay particular attention at this point, and also a few words about the German commanders the Allied troops are now facing. Here's Mr. Shara. The invasion was not many hours old today before the Nazi propagandists were up to their old tricks. For the home population, the German broadcasters were inclined to take a sober view, telling the German listener that this was the real thing, that the Allies were landing in force, and that there was no denying that the existence of Germany was at stake. In their foreign broadcasts, especially those beamed to England and America, the Nazi propagandists were not so careful. Having given us the first news and thus gained some credibility, they were quick to try to exploit their position. I suppose they thought they were being clever, but they really were not. For example, throughout the day, they gave many more place names of where we had landed than did the Allied command. This part of their report was probably fairly accurate. It established where the fighting was before the Allies gave it. Having done this, the Nazi propagandists then let loose with their old tricks. We knew they would start exaggerating our losses. That's exactly what they did. Though every Allied reporter on the scene emphasized how light were our initial losses. Another Nazi propaganda line broadcast all day was that we had begun the invasion on the orders of Moscow. Since the German people had been told in a great propaganda build-up that the so-called Atlantic Wall was impregnable, Goebbels had to think up some, some excuse during the day to explain how our forces got a foothold on the beaches and advanced inland. The excuse, emphasized in several Berlin broadcasts, was that it had always been German strategy to yield ground when that ground was of no importance. And that besides, where the Allies hit today was not the strongest part of the Atlantic Wall. Part of the German psychological war today was devoted to striking terror in the hearts of the occupied peoples, especially the French, a task in which Petain and Laval, be it said to their shame, aided their Nazi masters. The object, of course, was to frighten Frenchmen into helping the German defense and into refraining from helping the Allies. That was what Petain and Laval urged of their fellow countrymen. As for the Germans, they simply told the French they would be shot on sight if they went out on the streets after dusk or circulated during the day in any vehicles or even on bicycles. Some French believe that old Petain may have a last trick up his sleeve. 
That is, if and when the Germans are driven out of Paris, they think Petain may try to convoke the old chamber and senate and try to restore the Third Republic and thus forestall de Gaulle and his French committee while incidentally hoping thereby to save his own skin. A word about the German commanders our invading forces are facing. General Eisenhower's opposite number is Field Marshal von Rundstedt. He's 69, the oldest of the top German generals, and thus 18 years older than General Eisenhower. On the other hand, he is undoubtedly the best general Hitler had. I learned considerable about him when covering the German armies first in Poland and later in the German drive through Holland, Belgium, and France just four years ago. He made a great name in Poland and a great name in France and later in Russia. In Rundstedt and the other German general, Blaskowitz, if not in Rummel, the Allied commanders are up against two of Germany's best generals. But as one who saw them operate in two campaigns, I imagine they're not as confident now as they were then. The opposition is different now, and so are their own once unbeatable forces. That's William L. Shara, who's been speaking to us with a few words about German propaganda and the German commanders here at our Columbia News headquarters. A quick dispatch which has just come in from London tells us that uh, it comes from the ship HMS Hillary off the invasion coast, and it tells us that the first ground forces to land on the French beaches on Tuesday were Americans. They went ashore at 6.30 in the morning, followed by Canadians and British an hour later. But combined British and American paratroopers shared the honors of being the first soldiers of the liberating armies from the West to set foot on French soil. They battled the Germans for several hours before the Americans made the main landings on the beaches. And now, next, we come to Columbia's military analyst, Major George Fielding Elliott, who has a few words on German defenses. Major Elliott. Uh, you just heard Mr. Shire tell you that the German propagandists have been complaining that uh, we were unsportsmanlike enough to attack their Atlantic wall in a weak place instead of where it was strongest and where we would have lost the most men. Of course, this is very reprehensible of General Eisenhower and General Montgomery to do such a thing. But the fact that they have done so seems to be borne out by a very interesting dispatch about the German defensive system, which has just been received from Supreme Headquarters Allied Expeditionary Force. The Germans, in planning their beach defensives, left a number of fundamental weak spots. Among them, the shallow defense systems of the coastal strongholds between major ports. To all indications, the Allies took advantage of this lack of depth, that is, of these weak places where the defenses were not disposed in many lines, or rather in many systems of mutually supporting strong points, one behind the other. The Nazis pinned their Atlantic Wall defensive system upon the retention and defense of the major seaports, that is, places like Cherbourg, Le Havre, Dunkirk, Boulogne. According to German reports, Allied invasion armies struck between them at the weakest points in the defense chain. And one would think, well, well, they might. The Germans reportedly erected their heaviest defenses on the French side of the Straits of Dover, that is generally in the Dunkirk-Boulogne-Calais area. Second priority was given the Seine estuary, that is the port of Le Havre, and the other side of the Seine estuary, and the port of Cherbourg, which is on the Cotentin Peninsula. And you'll remember that the Germans are claiming that the port of Cherbourg is our immediate objective, though there's no confirmation of that from any Allied source. Other areas were developed to a lesser extent and at a later date. Well, it's between the mouth of the Seine, the Havre, and Cherbourg on the Cotentin Peninsula that Allied armies are now reported as trying to break through or as having broken through the initial 
German front. In these low-priority areas, uh, defenses are manned by German infantry and their supporting weapons, and uh, their supporting weapons consist primarily of a chain of strong points uh, sighted to cover beaches and extending along the coast at intervals averaging about a thousand yards, but they lack adequate depth. The strong points are surrounded by obstacles, barbed wire, tank ditches, and frequently by minefields, and contain machine guns, anti-tank guns, mortars, and anti-aircraft weapons. But they're usually garrisoned only by comparatively small forces, anything up to a rifle company of infantry, and the depth is not very great. That is, there are not three or four or five or six lines of these things, one behind another, but just one or two thin lines, and when that's broken through, the line is broken. That was Major George Fielding Elliott, Columbia's military analyst. At this point, it's a bit difficult to predict just what we're going to do tonight. We are going to remain on duty at our microphones, of course, at Columbia's news headquarters in New York. We remind you merely once again to stay tuned to this Columbia station, and we shall bring you the authentic news as soon as we receive it here. Bob Trout speaking. This is CBS, the Columbia Broadcasting System. The address by Senator Tom Connolly, originally scheduled for this time, and the program with Dean Hudson and his orchestra, scheduled for 1045, will not be heard. At this time, Columbia brings you a broadcast by the United States Navy Band. We will interrupt this program to bring you any late news developments. Yard in Washington, D.C., Columbia presents the United States Navy Band, Lieutenant Charles Brendler conducting. And our program opens with Lucien Caillet's Victory Fanfare. Stripes forever.
band with Meacham's American Patrol. de la Victoire, the Navy band plays the familiar French marching song, Father of Victory. Mm-hmm. 
the Navy will recognize the Navy band's next election. A hymn played for those in peril on the sea. Eternal Father, strong to save. On a familiar melody, Johnny Comes Marching Home, we hear the Navy band playing Morton Gould's American Salute.
American salute of Morton Gould, played by the United States Navy Band, Lieutenant Charles Brendler conducting. And now, the spirit of America. Again, a Sousa march by the Navy Band, Hands Across the Sea.
United States Navy Band is playing for you and closes the program now with Servicemen on Parade. Ladies and gentlemen, the United States Navy Band has been playing to you a special D-Day program from the sail loft in the Navy Yard in Washington, D.C. Our leader, the leader of the Navy Band, Lieutenant Charles Brendler.
has brought you this special Navy band program from the sail loft of the Navy Yard in Washington, D.C. This is CBS, the Columbia Broadcasting System.